Welcome to Car Wash, the podcast, your source for real stories and real business insights from the experts, both in and out of the car wash industry. So put it in neutral, feed off the brakes, and take your hands off the steering wheel, because here we go. Here is your guide on this journey, David Begin of Begin Insights. Hello and welcome to this episode of Car Wash the Podcast. How everybody's doing out there? I've got a special guest today, Gleb Sipersky. He's a PhD professor, formerly with Ohio State, but he's created his own company called Disaster Avoidance Experts. Is that correct, Gleb? That's correct, David, and thank you for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're super glad to have you, but you really focus. You just written a book which really intrigued me, and the name of the new book is Resilience, Adapt, and Plan for the New Abnormal of COVID-19 corona pandemic. And you've been doing this for a while. So before the pandemic, what type of activity and consulting opportunities did you help companies and individuals with? What I do is help folks avoid disasters. That's my expertise. So business continuity plans were definitely one area. And that was something that was interesting in the pandemic. And we can discuss the context of that because I think a lot of people made some mistakes with their business continuity plans in the pandemic. But we'll get to that in a bit. So I do work in disaster avoidance. Now, when we look at disasters, those are things that hurt our bottom lines. That's what disasters are. That's kind of the business disasters, anything that hurts your bottom line. And when you look at disasters, they come as a result of our decisions. That's where disasters come from. You know, however little folks want to believe it, it might come from a result of our deliberate intentional decisions, where we make a decision or a series of decisions that leads to disaster, such as a key employee leaving, or perhaps we enter into a bad business partnership, or we do a bad M&A merger and acquisition. That's a recipe for disaster right there. But sometimes it comes from another type of decision where we fail to make a decision and that results in a disaster. For example, failing to prepare for a global pandemic or failing to prepare for a key employee getting hit by a bus. There are all sorts of things that we fail to prepare for and fail to foresee. And that also results in disasters. So what I do is I don't only work on business continuity plans. I also work on various modes of strategic planning, decision-making, risk management, project plans, all of these sorts of things, helping leaders avoid disasters of all sorts. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And in thinking about those fringe activities that could take place in a business, it's very, very difficult for any business owner to do, whether a large corporation or even a small business, to think about the what ifs, because we're so focused on trying to run our business now. And, you know, it's hard for us to think about what could happen to our business. And that's really not the sexy part of running a business, right? It's not sexy to store a bunch of respirators in a warehouse that <laughs> that doesn't get attention of voters and things like that. So yeah, it doesn't. That's why I have a market niche, right? I, other, if that's people right. About this stuff, I wouldn't have a market niche, right? People would need to hire me. The thing is, people aren't used to thinking about this. Entrepreneurs, if you look at entrepreneurs, business owners, leaders of all sorts, CEOs, people at the top of companies, they look at the future and they see it as full of hope, full of promise, full of opportunities. They don't see it as full of risk, full of threats, full of hostility. Even though it very much is, just as it's full of opportunities, it's just as full of threats. But business leaders inherently don't see the threats. Otherwise, you know, they wouldn't have the vision that they do. They wouldn't have the hopeful vision. And they need help to address the threats and risks and problems. And that's what I help folks with. 
That's perfect. And you've probably been the most busiest man on the planet for the last three and a half months, I would imagine. Recently, yes. Yes, it's been a very busy period, not only with helping clients, but also finishing up this book that you mentioned, Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. My publisher approached me and asked me to write it super quickly. And as a lot of my speeches, I had a book tour plan for my previous book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. That was all canceled, the book in-person book tour. So I had some time to write a book. And so my publisher approached me, wrote the book very quickly, and it came out very rapidly. So that was an interesting experience. I was telling you, I read chapter one and like, I've got to get on to chapter two and three because you don't have a lot of good news for us no, uh, necessarily sorry. on this pandemic. But so a couple of things. So the first thing is, we in the U.S., in the U.K., probably, you know, depending on what side of the political spectrum on, I'll try to take a middle road here. We, we didn't do as good a job as we could have. That's probably a pretty common, for something as unique as a pandemic, which none of us have really ever lived through, we didn't either get out the playbook or we didn't do a good job of recognizing it. And you, you talk about a lot of different biases that we have as human beings you want to kind of explain what you think happened and then just kind of talk about what are some of the biases we run into as, as humans that prevent us from looking at a situation the way we need to? Well, the problem with our thinking is that it's full of biases. And this is my area of expertise as a researcher. So I've spent 20 years consulting, coaching, and training on strategic management, decision-making, risk management, sort of disaster avoidance. But I've also spent 15 years in academia researching cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics. Cognitive neuroscience is about the structure of our brain and how it causes us to behave in certain ways and think and feel in certain ways. And behavioral economics is how we as human beings behave in economic situations. So I've studied these topics, and one of the most fascinating and important and unfortunate for us findings in these fields is that we are full of what are called cognitive biases. That's our thinking patterns. We have a lot of faulty thinking patterns, and we can talk later about why that happens, but we do. We have a lot of blind spots that cause us to fall into very problematic situations. So for example, the underlying framework for this, so that you understand, is that it comes from our evolutionary background, our gut reactions, our intuitions, our thinking patterns. They're not wired for the modern environment. You know, the modern environment has really been around since World War II, our complex institutional globalized environment. But our gut reactions are wired for the savannah environment. When we lived in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people, and that was what we're wired for. That's what our gut reactions are well suited for. Now, as a result, we have a lot of problems when approaching this pandemic. For example, one of the biggest cognitive biases that we face is called the normalcy bias. Now, in the Savannah environment, the future was going to be much like today. So it was just, you know, you're going to be a little bit older and wiser and grayer version of yourself. The main change was the change of the seasons, spring, summer, whatever. In the modern environment, that's not the case. That's not the case at all. We have very many disruptors in our lives, technological disruptors. I mean, how much has the smartphone changed our lives? How much has the internet and social media changed our lives? You know, I still remember when we had to access the internet with a router, but uh, you know, I remember when people used, used phones to call instead of text. <laughs> so that's, uh, that was a long time ago. And that is something that, you know, maybe it ages me, but that's kind of part of the disruption that we've experienced. And we also experienced globally impactful disruptions like the 2000 
2008-2009 fiscal crisis or the current COVID-19 pandemic. However, we don't feel that. We don't feel that our world is disrupted viscerally. It feels like we really want to go back to normal. We want to open everything up. We want to pretend the virus doesn't exist. We want to rush back to normal. I'm not taking political sides here. This is as much the case for Democrats as Republicans. Everyone wants to and feels like they want to go back to normal. That's our gut reactions. We want that. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that's not the reality. The normalcy bias is our predilection to look at the future and imagine that it will be much like the past. So we look at the future a couple of years from now and we think, oh, you know, we'll go back to the time before the pandemic, everything will be fine. That's not the case at all. Unfortunately, if you look at the research and how long vaccine will take, we won't have a vaccine approved until at least summer of 2021 approved for wide use. And once it's approved, it will take about a year to produce, distribute, and vaccinate people. So we won't be done with the pandemic until 2022 at the earliest. And that's very optimistic. That assumes the first wave of vaccines works. And that's very unlikely. When we look at the history of vaccines, the first vaccines that are created for a virus are almost never effective. So it's most likely going to be the second or third wave of vaccines, especially since the first wave has rushed into production. So looking at that, what we're facing in the next few years until we have a vaccine widely available and people have taken it is these waves of restrictions. You have loosenings, you have people going to open up, then there's more cases, and then you have shutdowns, as you're seeing in many states happening right now across the U.S. And I already predicted this in March in a number of op-eds in prominent venues, but folks didn't believe me. They you know, wanted to rush, open up, go back to normal, and they wasted so much money. They lost so much money because they rushed to reopen, and they ran headlong into restrictions once again. So that's normalcy bias. That's one of the biggest ones. That's probably the biggest one regarding the pandemic. Don't assume that the future will be normal. I mean, in a couple of years, when we get through this several years, we'll have changed our norms, habits, values, and expectations in fundamental ways. So we're not never going to go back to January 2020. The pandemic will always be with us. And people don't realize that, you know, they're not pivoting, they're not shifting in time. And that leads us to another cognitive bias called the planning fallacy. Now, when you look at our plans, we feel good about ourselves. We're confident about ourselves, especially business leaders, those kind of optimistically oriented business leaders, they tend to feel very good about themselves and they see the world as full of opportunities. And they see their plans, they intuitively see their vision, and they see their vision as coming true. And they don't build in nearly enough contingencies for all the problems, risks, issues, challenges that will destroy a number of visions and have destroyed a number of visions. There is a reason more than half of all product launches fail. There is a reason about 70 to 90 percent of mergers and acquisitions fail because people have a vision and they don't realize that, especially for large projects, there's going to be many more risks, problems and threats than they anticipate. So that's called the planning fallacy, when we tend to assume everything will go according to plan, even though it will not, and don't build in nearly enough things to address various problems and threats, and don't pivot in a nearly quickly enough manner when our plans go awry. And so many companies, I'm seeing them not pivoting right now when they so much should really pivot in their strategic plan, risk management approach to generally how they structure and run their company, their internal business model and their external business model. So that's the planning fallacy. And the third one, really important as well, is called hyperbolic discounting. That's a fancy name for excessive hyperbolic discounting. So you're excessively discounting time. That's what it's about. You are 
are very much short-term oriented. That's our tendency. That's our intuition. In the savanna environment, we needed to be short-term oriented to survive because, you know, when the, if our ancestors killed the mammoth, they couldn't eat all the, they couldn't freeze the meat. They needed to eat as much meat as possible in the moment. And then, of course, you know, rest of the meat is left to rot. Well, here, you know, in our modern world, we have a fridge, so we don't have to worry about that, but we're not going to go hunting mammoths. We're going to put our money in a bank. We're going to invest in our professional development, in our career, and we're going to look at the long term of our company and develop products and so on for the long term. But it's very unintuitive for us to realize that threats, slow-moving, high-impact, low-probability threats like COVID-19 will be a long-term disruptor. So we're only business leaders are only managing the current situation and they're not thinking nearly enough about the long term of COVID-19. That's why they're using their business continuity plans wrong. They're only using them to address the short-term disruption of COVID-19, whereas what they should be doing is revising their business continuity plans to address the long-term, long-term disruption of COVID-19 if they want to really thrive and survive realistically and especially thrive in this pandemic. So these three cognitive biases, the normalcy bias, the planning fallacy, and the hyperbolic discounting are the biggest ones you need to watch out for in the pandemic. No, I think that's fantastic. And you've made a great point. I think if nobody gets anything else out of this podcast, or even out of your book, is if you're a business owner or a business leader waiting for things to get back to normal, there is no more normal. And we're going to get through this pandemic, but what comes on the backside is not, like you said it, and this is what really hit me between the eyes, we will never get back to January 2020. If we are living for that, if we're sitting around waiting for this pandemic to get over so we can get back to normal, we're really putting our business and our personal lives at risk. Exactly, David. Exactly. I think that's really interesting. So those particular biases and normals, we want things. I think you're right in that we are so desperate to be normal again that we are ignoring what's really happening. And I was thinking as I was reading your book, I don't know if you remember a rock and roll band named White Snake, and they had a concert in a very small venue kind of after they were popular. And they had a pyrotechnic part of their show that started the nightclub on fire. And they're, oh, they're filming I this. That. Yes, I don't know if you remember this. Yes. And as this fire starts, everybody's not doing anything, right? They're just kind of standing there stunned, not really knowing what to do. And it turned out to be a tragic, a massive tragic loss of life because people didn't react like they should have reacted when that fire was just getting started. People should have been bailing out of that place pretty quickly. Is that an example of the normalcy bias in an, a fire? Yes, it's an example of normalcy bias in the fire. The people looked around the situation. They saw that everybody else, there's two dynamics to that. They saw that everybody else was treating the situation as normal. And they thought, oh, it must be part of the pyrotechnics. It must be for part of the you know, show. And they thought it's just a normal thing. It's what's supposed to be here. Nobody's worried about anything. I'm not going to be worrying about anything. What Do I want to look like a coward or something running out of there? <laughs> you know, that's how people felt. And so many people right now are treating complying with CDC guidelines or even opening their business, moving to virtual as that, you know, being cowardly. And they're not realizing that the, even the fact that they are 
not doing these things results in very negative outcomes for themselves and very many others around them. So many people rushing to reopen have lost a lot of money. And of course, a number of people have lost their lives. That's we're seeing the uptick in cases right now because of that. It's pretty scary. Would you equate that to the same process we went through here in the U.S. and maybe even the United Kingdom where we were hoping at the beginning, this isn't going to be a big deal. This isn't going to be a big deal. And then all of a sudden it's a big deal. That's exactly right. And of course, if you, like I said, back in March, I already predicted a number of op-eds that people would greatly underestimate the threat of the pandemic and they would rush back to reopen when they really shouldn't. This is a big problem. People want to reopen and they don't want this to be true. And here we go into how we respond to threats. Now, if you go back to the Savannah environment, our primary response to threats, their gut reaction, what we feel is right. And when I talk about gut reaction, I feel I talk about emotions, I talk about our heart, whatever you do when you feel with your body, when you feel something comfortable, when you believe it, when it feels right. So when it feels right, one of the the major ways we respond to threats. In fact, the main way we respond to threats is the fight or flight response. So that's the main way we respond to threats. That's what our gut reaction tells us to do. In the Savannah environment, that was great. You know, we needed to get away from the jumper hundred shadows to get away from a saber-toothed tiger. That's also called the saber-toothed tiger response. You might have heard of it as that. But in the modern environment, it's much less great. You know, there are many less saber-toothed tigers around. And our threats are much more likely to be not those intense, immediate, in the moment, life or death threats of the saber-toothed tigers, but more ambiguous, uncertain, chaotic threats. Maybe a notification on your smartphone about an article in your newsfeed about some kind of disease in the middle of China coming up that is very easy to ignore because it's you know, in the middle of nowhere China, Wuhan, right? Who knows? Well, guess what? Wuhan is a huge city. It's an industrial metropolis. 11 million people, produces over 22 billion of revenue per year, has something like 500 international flights per day. And that's an average, if you put 200 people on a flight, that's 10,000 people going in and out of Wuhan. Of course, it's going to spread around the world. It's going to be a huge global pandemic. It was obvious already when it happened in Wuhan to people who bothered to take a look and calculate the situation. And unfortunately, top leaders were not paying attention and were not believing uh, this information and not talking simply about political leaders. This applies to business leaders as well. I mean, Elon Musk on March 6 tweeted that the coronavirus pandemic is dumb as it was taking root here in the United States. And on March 19th, you know, after Donald Trump declared the pandemic a national emergency, Elon Musk tweeted that based on current trends, there will be zero new cases in the U.S. by the end of April. Well, we are over three million by now. So clearly Elon Musk was wrong and so many other top business leaders followed the example of Elon Musk, had the same sort of ideas. And of course, he's one of the most important business influencers. And they made very bad mistakes in responding to COVID-19. And you know what? They'll keep making these mistakes unless they address the underlying flawed patterns in their thinking and their feeling. We tend to make these bad decisions. And it's very unfortunate, but that's how our gut reaction works. We need to be aware of them in order to address them and prevent ourselves from making these really bad decisions. Right. And one of the issues we have, and you being a disaster avoidance expert, this this is probably right up your alley in terms of most of us are familiar and relatively comfortable with one event disasters, whether it's a hurricane, tornado, 9-11, you know, it happened and it's over with. And now we're dealing with the aftermath and it, it's a pretty short, compressed time frame. I think what human beings don't like is this open-ended 
we have no idea how long and we don't know how bad this is going to be that really messes with our psyche. Yes, it does. It really unfortunately does. And this is going back to hyperbolic discounting. This is our reaction to it. So we tend to be very short-term oriented and we pay attention to what is most emotionally salient. And that's another cognitive bias. So this, this is called attentional bias. In the Savannah environment, it was a very good fit. We needed to pay attention to what we felt was the most important thing in our environment. And in the Savannah environment, whatever we drew our attention to, whatever was around us, maybe there's a branch breaking. That's really important for us to pay attention to because, you know, it might be grizzly bear or something like that, or it might be a deer and we can, you know, hunt the deer. So that was really important for us to pay attention to. And we paid much more attention to that than all other you know, elements in our context. And so what's happening right now is that COVID-19 is becoming part of our context. We can't run on emergency mode for our whole lives. People have been treating COVID-19 as a sprint, and that's a very bad mistake. One of the biggest problems with business continuity plans is that they're made for a short-term emergency. They're made for a one- to two-week interruption, you know, a blizzard or a hurricane or something like a flood. Let's say when Houston got flooded, that's a one- to two-week interruption. That's great for the standard business continuity plan, but it's terrible for COVID-19. COVID-19 is more like Houston got flooded and stayed flooded. <laughs> so right, you're not going to simply... Yeah, exactly. It'll stay flooded for the next three years. And what you need to do is not go and try to recover and repair your car. What you need to do is go and build a canoe. <laughs> that's the that's what you need to do. But people aren't building canoes. They're going back to their cars and trying to restart them, even though they're underwater. That's what essentially is happening. COVID-19 has become, is part of our context, is part of our environment. And people are not realizing that it's, it's not a sprint. It's not a couple of month thing. It's a marathon. It's going to be many years, many years that we're dealing with it, two, three years if we're lucky. And we can get really unlucky. I mean, I you know, don't want to go there too much, but on the optimist, you know, this is optimistically two to three years. Pessimistically, if you look at vaccines, we still don't have an effective vaccine for the freaking flu, <laughs> for the flu. We've been trying to get that vaccine for over a century. But right now, what we have is a vaccine that's only about 50% effective, reducing infection rates by 50%. You know, if you reduce infection rates by 50% for COVID-19, you'll still have enormous death rates, enormous. This will still be terrible. COVID-19 will then continue being part of our context in our lives, and people are completely unprepared for this. So, you know, and they're you're not even prepared for the optimistic scenario of two years, the most optimistic scenario of two years. They're preparing for it to be over by, you know, some people were thinking that it would be over by the early summer. It would burn out by the summer. Very many businesses thought so, and they made their business plans. Right now, many people are thinking it'll be over by, you know, the end of the year or something like that. I don't know why they're thinking that, but, you know, there are certain people who are saying that it's going to be over by the end of the year, and it won't be. And this is something that people are getting fundamentally wrong. They're not preparing themselves for a marathon. They feel like they're going in emergency mode. And when we're going in emergency mode, we burn out. We burn out of our energy, and we get tired. And we get tired of following the mask guidelines. We get tired of social distancing. We get tired of sitting at home because we feel like it's an emergency. What we need to do, what we must understand is it's not an emergency. It's a major disruptor. It made our lives different. It's just like a smartphone. You know, you're not going to behave in the same ways after you have a smartphone. And therefore, you know, your habits are going to change. And you need to change your habits because this is going to be a many years long thing 
for COVID-19, your personal habits and your professional habits, how you interact in the workplace. And businesses need to change fundamentally their internal business model and their external business model to adapt to the reality of COVID-19. Yeah, no, I can agree with more. And I think that's the problem we as human beings did is we treated it like a sprint. So we got exhausted in the sprint and we're like, okay, this is over with. I'm tired. I want to go on vacation. I want to start hanging out with my friends. And we were treating this the wrong way. And if we don't get any other message across, I think the fact this is going to be a marathon and we've got to treat it like a marathon. You don't run a the marathon the same way you run a sprint. And it's really super important to know the difference between the two. But one thing I want to ask you about from a business owner standpoint, if I'm a business owner and you're asking me to plan for these contingencies, if you asked me 12 or 18 months ago to plan for a pandemic, I thought you're crazy. I'm not planning for a pandemic. That is such an outlier that it doesn't make economic sense for me to make investments in my business because of a pandemic. So how do you help business owners who are on the fringe, you're talking about fringe issues here, and it is sort of this, you know, risk versus reward decision-making process that business owners have to make. When you're talking about these unlikely scenarios, how do you encourage them to consider those? You know, it's not that hard once you look at the, you don't think simply about the risk. And that's a, a way that many people think. They think only about the likelihood. And this is a very big problem because that's not how threats work. They don't simply work on the likelihood. You know, otherwise, if people only thought about likelihood, if they only thought about probability, who'd be playing the lottery, right? <laughs> it's like playing the lottery, right? Lottery is incredibly low likelihood, but it's incredibly high impact if you win it. So there's a reason that people play the lottery. And the pandemic is, a, is like the reverse of the lottery. <laughs> it's low probability, but incredibly high impact. So you got to think about it as you think about the lottery, you know, not necessarily the lottery, but other sort of low probability, high impact events, you know, if you don't play the lottery, but other things that you protect to give yourself against for what's the likelihood that your home will go on fire, right? That's a low probability scenario. But who among the you listeners doesn't have fire insurance in their home, right? That's kind of dumb to not have fire insurance in your home, right? So why not have pandemic insurance just as the same way for a business? This applies to businesses, not simply individuals. This is just as low probability. If you think about the likelihood of a pandemic, it's going to sweep across the country. It's going to be really major. It's going to impact everyone. And you're not hedged at all. You know, you might be hedged if you have, let's say, 10 venues. If let's say you, you're a dining business and you have 10 diners around the region, one of them burns down. You know, it's terrible, but you still have nine more that go on. And hopefully at insurance, you'll be paid for that. But if you have a pandemic, all 10 will have to be closed down. <laughs> you know, that's pretty terrible. So you're not hedged. This is another huge problem for business leaders to who are not thinking about hedging, where there's some kind of emergency that might happen in one of your venues. Others will go on unless you're a small enterprise. And even small enterprises can go on if you know one of their employees gets sick or something hit by a bus. But if there's a pandemic and you all have to work from home, you're not prepared for that, that's very bad. So what you need to do is calculate for major disasters for earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, all of those sorts of things, you want to calculate not simply the probability of a major business interruption, but also the impact of it. And then you need to multiply those. What is the probability? Let's say, you know, probability of a pandemic 
every year is going to be 1%, just hypothetically speaking. So 1%, it's probably going to be higher because, you know, if you look at the 1918 pandemic, you have many others, you have the 1968 pandemic, that's probably going to be closer to 2 to 3%. So let's say 3%. So 3% for a pandemic. And how much of an economic hit is it going to be for you, for your business, if it's going to be a pandemic? So let's say the economic hit to your business is going to be 1 million for uh, enterprise that makes, uh, let's say, 50 million a year. So then 1 million times... 3%, then 30,000 is the amount you should spend per year on addressing pandemic threats. That's for that sort of enterprise. So that's how you calculate those probabilities, those impacts. And 30,000 you know, is a reasonable price to pay for pandemic insurance or the equivalent of it, strategic planning, addressing things, putting resources into motion to address pandemic threats. So 30,000 per year and so on for all these other threats. Uh, that's how you address these sorts of threats. You want to look at the likelihood and the impact, uh, calculate the impact, calculate the likelihood, and then address it with the appropriate resources. It's pretty simple. I mean, any business owner can do it in their sleep. Well, not calculate the likelihood and the impact, but realize the principle that you look at the likelihood and you look at the impact and you multiply them together to protect yourself from the threat of the pandemic. And that's the kind of things that you need to do if you want to actually protect yourself and avoid disasters. And that is a fundamental aspect of what I do in my work for folks. What you do, Gleb, which is really great, is you kind of help people understand their blind spots when it comes to these types of plans. And well, that makes sense. What you said made made really great sense in terms of how do you calculate that and how do you determine you know, how you plan for it. Relatively straightforward with that. What are you recommending businesses do? So we'll kind of talk about businesses and we'll talk about individuals, but what are some things you're doing to help your businesses, you know, make that shift in their mindset, a shift in their business models? How are you helping them? So you want to think about your internal business model and your external business model. And in each of those areas, what I'm strongly, very strongly encouraging businesses to do is go as much virtual as possible. This protects you against not simply the pandemic, but other threats that are going to be coming up with the pandemic that are going to be harder to solve. I mean, you've, you've probably heard about the hurricane, whatever, the dust cloud enveloping the southeast and the south for a while. And that made the pandemic harder. You, you know, fires, hurricanes, floods you know, blizzards eventually, all sorts of things when people will have to be inside, right? So this will make it really problematic in combination with COVID-19 that's making all of these other disasters harder and more problematic. So what you want to think about is switching your business model as much to virtual as possible. And this really helps you address a lot of costs because a major way that businesses spend money is on office space. And if you can get your office space down to zero, that's ideal. But most people can get it down to at least 10% of what they had before. So take down 90% of your office space, have no more than one or two people in the office at most, take care of necessary paperwork and so on, and send the rest to work at home virtually full-time permanently. This is really incredibly important. And there are six business areas that you need to address in a virtual transformation when you're getting your team to work at home. One is 
motivation engagement. Now, already before the pandemic, we've had a lot of problems with motivation engagement. How do you motivate people? Only 34% of people have been really engaged, according to Gallup surveys, creative problem solving, willing to sacrifice for the company. You know, about 60% are somewhat passive. They're willing to come into work and punch the clock and do the bare minimum that they need to. And about 15% were actively hostile, bad-mouthing the company, trying to find a new place. So, not great. That's the kind of breakdown that was approximately before the pandemic. Now, with the pandemic, more people working at home, transition to virtual teams, people don't have that tribal feeling that's surrounding around them of all the people working together and collaborating effectively, motivating each other. So you got to motivate them and engage them effectively. And there are many ways to do that when people are working at home, but you've got to figure that out and address those things. So motivation, engagement. Then effective communication. People, are when they're working face-to-face, they can communicate effectively in many ways that are different from the when they work virtually, because when they work virtually, they're overwhelmingly going to communicate through a collaboration software like Asana, Trello, Mondays, Slack, Microsoft Teams, things like this. So that you lose a lot when you only have verbals. You don't have tone of voice. You don't have facial expression. You can't read those emotional cues, which are so important for communicating. So there's going to be a lot of miscommunication, a lot of problems, a lot of conflicts if you don't address this. And this can be addressed pretty easily through training people on effective virtual communication in Teams, on Asana, on Trello, and so on. Next, transitioning from that. Third area, noticing and solving problems and conflicts. So problems and conflicts are going to arise much more. I talked about miscommunication, but also just because you're not seeing each other, you're not seeing what other people are expressing. You're not seeing them be tense, be wary, be confused, be anxious. You can't chat to them in the moment and say, hey, what's up? I noticed that you, you, know, you seem, there seems to be some anxiety, some tension. Let, let's talk about what's going on. You can't notice problems in the moment. And of course, it's much harder to solve them because of the communication issues. Four variants. Cultivating trust. In the office, it happens very naturally when we cultivate trust. When we communicate with people, we chat to them over the water cooler, you know, how's your kids? How's the local football team doing? You know, go box, right? What's your vacation plans? All of that stuff. You can't do that in the virtual environment naturally. You have to create a specific venue for it. And there are many ways of doing that, but you have to deliberately do it. This isn't a matter of training. Communication and problem solving, that's a matter of training. Cultivating trust, that's a matter of creating a venue. Next, security and internal controls. In a typical business continuity plan, the one to two week, there's nothing really on internal controls because you don't really need to worry about that for one or two weeks. But if you transition to virtual, as so many people are right now, and wisely so, you need to address a lot of internal controls, whether financial controls, so how do you manage your finances, cybersecurity threats. We have a lot more hacking going on right now, according to the FBI, because people are at home. They're not used to following cybersecurity protocols. Their their software isn't, I mean, uh, I have to say uh, some of my clients that are older C-suite people who don't really know how to use their software very well, especially when their assistants aren't around in that environment with them. So, I mean, I had a story where somebody actually turned off their firewall because they couldn't access their remote server. And I'm just, oh man, that's bad. So yeah. <laughs> it's not a good, so people, good solution. Not, no, no, absolutely not. So people need to be taught how to do this. And you know, the IT team needs to teach them. This is something that people need to be thinking about and addressing. And there are a number of, you need to change your compliance policies, 
training not only in cybersecurity, but in bullying and harassment, all of these sorts of compliance policies, CDC guidelines, and so on. And you also need to change your internal measurements of effectiveness and efficiency, because they're going to be different for when you're doing teams internal virtually than when you're doing it person to person, in person. And finally, sixth area of the internal business model is accountability. Now, in the office, it's very natural to hold people accountable. And supervisor walks around, you know, sees what other people are doing, see you know, if they seem bored or disengaged or relaxed or anxious, you know, check in with them, chat to them, you know, connect with them, see what's going on. And peer to peer, you know, you can pop into somebody's office and say, hey, Mary, where's that report you promised me earlier? Well, guess what? You know, it's much easier for Mary to ignore a Slack message than it is for Mary to ignore you standing right there in her office door. So you need to figure out accountability protocols, mechanisms, institutions of both chain of command accountability, up and down the chain of command, and peer-to-peer accountability. So those are the six areas of the internal business model. And there are six areas of the external business model, which we can talk about as well. I'll go through them quickly. I'm not sure how much time we have left. One is delivering your offerings virtually, or at least socially distanced, and we can talk about that. How to cultivate existing relationships and establishing new ones in virtual settings. That's much harder to do than in in person. I need to train people on this. Then managing disruptions among your external stakeholders. So your external stakeholders, they, unlike the people who are listening to this podcast, who would check out my book, Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic, your external stakeholders of all sorts are not going to be nearly as savvy as you and realize that you need to plan for the long term of the marathon, and they're going to have a lot of disruptions and they're going to stumble, and you need to plan and protect yourself against that. Then anticipate and address shifting social and economic norms and habits. Talked about how they'll shift over time in the next several years as we deal with the pandemic. And you need to anticipate and get ahead of these shifts if you want to really make an economic impact and profit as much as you can. Then you want to think about unknown unknowns. So there are going to be a lot of unknown unknowns, like this dust cloud that will clash with the pandemic and will exacerbate things. And there are ways you can predict unknown unknowns. You can scan your environment for them. There are a number of people who are specifically looking for them, like who are prominent thought leaders like Bill Gates. He predicted the pandemic. He was talking about it early, and he's talking about a number of other disasters that are on the horizon that people aren't thinking about. So look for unknown unknowns and make sure to address them. And finally, think about how to outcompete your competition. Your competition is going to be, unlike you, much less savvy about the long-term impact of the pandemic. So you want to think about your competition, where they're likely to stumble, and how you can take advantage of them stumbling to seize market share, hire away good employees, and profit. That's great. That's good stuff. So how do you recommend individuals and households sort of deal with this issue? Well, what you want to think about when you're an individual or household is replacing all the things that you used to do for fun, for engagement, in person, with virtual activities. It's not easy and it's not fun, but there's going to be a number of restrictions and shutdowns. We saw opening up in a number of states and then shutting down a number of states. Now, one of my favorite things to do is going out to eat. I have to say this now, I go out to eat. Well, I used to go out to eat with my wife one to two times a week and with friends and business colleagues. So probably something like two to three times a week. That was my one of my favorite forms of entertainment. Well, guess what? Indoor dining is one of the most dangerous things you can be doing right now. 
and deservedly so, a number of states are closing down indoor dining after opening it back up again when they're discovering how dangerous it is, especially bars, you know, when you go to, you know, drinking and dining as well. These are really dangerous, a lot of threats, so I'm very committed to not doing that. So I have to find myself new things to do, and my wife and I are finding new things to do right now in the summer. We have a nice patio, so we're hanging out there, spending a lot of time ordering out. And that's just one example of how you have to figure out how to replace the things that you used to do that were really fun and that you really want to do in terms of in-person activities with things that you can do virtually with friends. So right now, we're social distancing at least. So we have some friends coming over this weekend for Saturday. So my closest friends, but we're socially distancing from them. And what we're doing is virtual game night. Well, it's not virtual game night. They're bringing over their laptops and my wife and I will have our laptops and we'll all play a game together on our laptops, you know, our computer game where we can all collaborate, but we can all see each other and comment on it. So it's going to be a socially distanced game night on our computers. And that's a way we can replace the kind of things that we used to do for fun. You know, game night was a really fun activity. I really enjoyed that. And we can still do that, but we are doing that virtually. So that is the kind of things you need to be thinking about. How to replace the kind of things that you want, that you used to do by yourself and with other people virtually in order to satisfy your fundamental needs. And when you think about your fundamental needs, there are needs of physical health, mental health, connection to others, sense of fulfillment, meaning and purpose. You know, if you did volunteering and that was giving you a sense of meaning and purpose, there's a lot of virtual volunteering options that you can do right now. You want to think about that. You want to explore these sorts of options. You also want to be realistic and you realize that you need to prepare for a more serious outbreak in your local area and for more shutdowns. You know, we don't have shutdowns everywhere, but we're going to have more and more shutdowns over time, especially as the weather turns colder, people do more stuff inside and the pandemic spreads. So we both know that it spreads much more inside than outside COVID-19. And in cold weather, it spreads much more than in warm weather. So it's going to get much worse in a few months. So in, especially in a few months from now, there's going to be a lot more restrictions. And there's going to be, I can, I'm pretty confident that there will be, again, supply disruptions where grocery stores and so on will have trouble with a lot of supplies. So you want to think about how can you prepare yourself for that? You know, maybe stock up some supplies. You know, don't go crazy and buy all the toilet paper. You know, go online. There's plenty of places that you can get things that you, you don't empty your grocery store shelves. But you want to prepare yourself for shutdowns, for disruptions, and what you're going to do in that case. Yeah, now's the time to be planning for that because that probably will happen again because people start becoming irrational when it comes time to stock up on things, as we saw. Gleb, this is really helpful. I appreciate your willingness to write this book. I appreciate your willingness to be honest with us and having us take a hard look at where we're at and what we're thinking about and how we need to be thinking about this particular pandemic and how we need to be thinking about disasters in general. So I appreciate your work. Your book, why don't you tell us where we can get that if we want it? Sure. Resilience, the depth and plan for the new abnormal of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic, published by a great traditional publisher called Changemakers Books, 
Well, it's an imprint of John Hunt Publishing. It's available in bookstores everywhere. So if your bookstores are open around you, but maybe you want to be a little bit safer than that, and go online to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, other venues like this. You also can check out my resources on disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. There's blogs, videos, podcasts, online classes, decision guides, manuals, virtual coaching, consulting, and training opportunities, especially check out disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe for a free eight video-based module course on making the wisest decisions. Again, eight video-based modules on making the wisest decisions, along with an assessment on dangerous judgment errors in the workplace for free on disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. That's great stuff. So if somebody wants to hire you, that's where they would go to if they want to use you as a consultant. You bet. Cleb, thank you so much. This has been terrific. I appreciate your time and thanks so much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Car Wash the Podcast. We appreciate you listening. Tell your friends about the podcast. Of course, you can get this podcast anywhere you get podcasts, or you can go out to the Car Wash Magazine site at carwashmagazine.com and select podcast and you'll be able to get them on the web too. So for David Begin, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Car Wash the Podcast. Car Wash the Podcast is your source for real stories and real business insights from the experts, both in and out of the car wash industry. Our show helps investors, owners, operators, and managers think about ways to enhance their business. Our podcast is a free, on-demand audio program that provides information on the latest trends impacting the industry, tips from successful industry leaders, and inspiration for our listeners.